This last week, I was asked a, an interesting question. It came from Mitchell, and he, uh, he asked me if I could put in one sentence my description of the Bible, the story of the Bible. Great question, and I uh, had never really thought about it, and I've had time to think about it since then. And I guess the simplistic answer I would give, and this is a very brief answer to a very broad question, would be the Bible is the story of redemption. If you think about it from beginning to end, it, it's all about redemption. It starts with creation, but very quickly we have that problem, that problem that takes place in chapter 3 where things go south, where Adam and Eve make a really poor decision, and the ramifications of that poor decision have affected mankind from that point forward to this very day. And will continue to do so according to the Scriptures all the way through to the, the end, the, the very end. But woven throughout the Scriptures is this picture of redemption. God's redemption of what He's made. His restoration and ultimately His recreation of all that He's made that is currently flawed, that's under a curse. And so that's my simple answer, that the Bible is the story of redemption. And we're going to continue to look at that in this week's lesson, week five of Thy Kingdom Come. Now I want to begin with reading you a, a part of the, the, it sounds like a psalm, but it's not a psalm. I almost called it a psalm. It's actually the very last words of King David, and they're found in 2 Samuel. And I've probably read this passage before, but it's never really made much sense to me if I did. But now that we've been going through this topic of the kingdom of God, it takes on a whole new light, especially with what we're going to look at today. Listen to what he says. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. That's going to become really important as we go through today's lesson. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So here's King David on his deathbed making a statement about what a good king, a godly king looks like. He goes on and says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So here in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we have David talking about what a godly king looks like. He, he brings light to the world. He illuminates the darkness with his righteous rule because he rules on behalf of God. A worthless man, a worthless king is the exact opposite. He's harmful. He does devastation. He brings darkness into the world rather than light. Now, as I said, that's going to become important as we look at today's lesson because we're really moving towards the coming of the king, the, the, the consummate king, the king promised in the Old Testament. And, and as before, we're going to look at a lot of passages one of the things that you're going to notice that in the notes that I give you, there's not a whole lot of bullets. There's not a whole lot of application as much as there is a look at the Scriptures. Because I believe if we're going to understand the kingdom, 
we have to go and look at the scriptures. What do the scriptures say about this topic? Last week we looked at Matthew 1, 1 through 16. I gave you that chart of the genealogy of Jesus. And it shows that it goes from Abraham to David, the first real king, and then it ends up with Jesus Christ. And in that is wrapped up this whole idea of the covenants. And we looked at these briefly last week. The first is the Abrahamic covenant. And it's found in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. A blessing to who? A blessing to the nations. I will bless those who bless you. And, I, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's the Abrahamic covenant. And then we didn't look at this, but there's the Davidic covenant that comes about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here's what God does with King David. He reaffirms the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, David is in the middle of that genealogy between Abraham and Jesus Christ. And so God is reaffirming the same covenants that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He reaffirms his promise of the land, but he does it in a slightly different way. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. So here's God reaffirming the same idea that I'm going to give you a land. Well, they were already in the land. Uh, they, they came into the land under, under the leadership of Joshua. They conquered the land. And under David, they conquered it in a major way because he expanded the, the borders of Israel beyond anything they had ever known before. But they're in that land, the land that God had promised Abraham. And then he reaffirms the promise of offspring. You remember we saw that word so many times in the book of Genesis as God reiterated that promise to Abraham over and over again, and then to his son Isaac, and then to his son Jacob. He says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So here's God making a very similar promise to King David, the very same promise he made to Abraham. Kings shall come from you. Kings were going to come from Abraham, and ultimately from Isaac, and then ultimately from Jacob. Kings shall come from your own body, according to Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. So those promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are now being passed down to David, the king of Israel. And then he promises to extend David's dynasty. He's the king, but a king who doesn't have anyone to come after, after him really isn't much of a king. Every king wants to extend his dynasty through his heirs. And so God, God promises to do just that for David. And this was partially fulfilled in Solomon the son of David, who would become the next king of Israel. Here's what God promised David. He, your son, shall build a house for my name. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. And then we know that Solomon partially fulfilled this because he, he oversaw the construction of the temple. He's the one who built it. It was David's idea, but God didn't let David build it because he had blood on his hands. So he said, your son shall build it. And Solomon did. And he dedicated that temple. But he would end up as an idolater. So here's this guy who builds a temple to Yahweh, to God Almighty, the God of the Israelites. But by the time his, 
reign comes to an end, he has become a blatant idolater because he's married way too many foreign wives and brought their gods into his kingdom. And he's worshiping those gods and placing their idols all over Israel. And so God is upset. And as a result, he splits his kingdom in two. At the end of his reign, everything gets torn apart. And you end up with Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And so God has to punish Solomon for his unfaithfulness. But then God adds another promise. And this is why we know that the, these promises are not completely filled in Solomon, but they're fulfilled in someone else to come. See, he promises him an everlasting kingdom. He says, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. The throne of Solomon, your son, I will establish it forever. But we just said God split that kingdom in two. That there seems to be something going on here. He goes on and says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What we know from history is that Zedekiah is going to be the last king to sit on, sit on David's throne. If you go back and look at that genealogy from Matthew chapter 1, there are some names there. Some of the names are left out. It's not all the kings that came from Abraham through David. But there's a lot of kings who ruled in that southern kingdom of Judah on the throne of David. And as I said last week, most of them were not good kings. They didn't follow after God. They were wicked. But the last one is going to be this guy named Zedekiah. We know from 2 Kings chapter 24 that the king of Babylon, when they invaded Judah, they made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king. So this guy gets put on the throne by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And then they changed his name to Zedekiah. What's going on here? Well, it's, it's the invasion of Judah by the Babylonians as punishment for their sins against God. So God is going to destroy Judah, just like He had done hundreds of years earlier to the northern kingdom of Israel through the Assyrians. So here we have the last king, the last king to sit on the throne of David. See, in 586 B.C., David's dynasty, dynasty seems to come to a screeching halt. It, it, and it doesn't end in a really good way because the Babylonians come and they conquer and defeat Judah. And then they put this king Zedekiah to death. And it's a gruesome event. We read about it in Jeremiah 52. It says, Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. See, Zedekiah, though put on the throne by the Babylonian king, rebelled against the Babylonian king. And as a result... His sons are put to death before his eyes. The dynasty, the heirs to the throne are killed, and then his eyes are put out. He's taken prisoner to Babylon where he dies in chains. So it brings it to an end. But that brings us to Christ. See, we know that these promises made to David were not completely fulfilled in Solomon, and they most certainly weren't fulfilled in Zedekiah because with the death of Zedekiah, it seems that the dynasty of David has come to an end. But we also know from Matthew chapter 1 through 16, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 16, we see that from Abraham came David, 
Through David eventually comes Jesus Christ. But it's a long wait between Zedekiah and Jesus Christ. More than six centuries have to go by before the promises made to David in that Abraham in that Davidic covenant are fulfilled. Six centuries. See, in 332 BC, we know that Judea is conquered by Alexander the Great. Yet another defeat. Even though they eventually come back to the land from Babylon, a remnant comes back. In 332 BC, they're defeated. In 201 BC, the Seleucids regain control. So this area of the world was constantly under the attack from other countries, more powerful countries. And remember, there is no king. Zedekiah is gone. They're back in the land, but they, they don't have anyone sitting on the throne. So in 67 BC, the Romans invade and occupy Judea. And that's going to be the situation when Jesus appears on the scene. Because in 40 BC, they also conquer Galilee. And they take over the whole region, north to south. And again, that's what's happening when Jesus appears on the scene. The Romans are now ruling over the people of Israel. And we know in 37 BC, Herod the Great is appointed the king of Israel by the Roman emperor. So that sets the stage for all that comes. But it paints the picture that the Israelites for now six centuries have been waiting for what? That king who would be the promise, the fulfillment of the promise made to David. You'll always have a king to sit on your throne. There will be somebody that will fulfill this. Well, where is he? We've been waiting for centuries. He's still not here. So when Jesus shows up, they're still waiting. And here's what they knew. They knew from their scriptures that this, this anointed one, this long-awaited Messiah was coming. They just didn't know when, and they were always waiting. And they had a particular idea of what he would look like when he came. We know from Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah, that southern kingdom, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You see this picture of a king who's going to come. We know this from Daniel chapter 7. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One, a reference to God, and was led into God's presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey Him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. See, the old Old Testament paints this picture of this coming one and the Jews would read these passages and long for him to show up. Now would be a great time. The, the Romans are oppressing us. They're, they're taxing us. Now would be a great time for this Messiah, this descendant of David to show up on the scene. Well, Zechariah 9, 9 and verse 10 also tells of this one. Rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. You see all these references to this king. He would be a conqueror. He's going to bring peace. And then we know that there's, there's more to this story. They're told of a child, a child who would be born, who, who would be given to them by God. 
sent to them by God, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will know no end. And it goes on and says, He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. See, here we have an Isaiah. Isaiah is reiterating what God had said, that He is coming. He will be here. God is going to send Him. The Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. And yet, they're still waiting. How about Jeremiah 23? For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land, and this will be His name. The Lord is our righteousness. In that day Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Here, once again, is this promise of God doing something incredible through this anointed one, through this Messiah, this King, who they are still longing to see. So they have incredibly high expectations. But you can imagine that over the centuries, those expectations become a little weak. They begin to wonder, maybe he's never going to come. And every time somebody would come forward and say, I'm the Messiah, they would get a burst of excitement and then realize he's, he's not the one. And that happened regularly. And so you can see that they've got this high expectation because when the Messiah comes according to the prophets, he's going to do certain things. He's going to restore the Davidic dynasty which has been vacant since the death of Zedekiah. Not only that, he's going to defeat all the enemies of God. He's going to defeat the Romans. He's going to defeat anybody and everybody that is a threat to the people of God. He's going to bring peace and ultimately unite all the nations. Because if you go back and you read all these prophecies concerning the Messiah, these are the things that he's promised to do. He's going to bring peace. He's going to rebuild Solomon's temple. Now, when Jesus came, there was a temple, but it was called Herod's temple. It was a poor facsimile of the original. It was nowhere near the glory and the majesty of Solomon's temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then finally, this Messiah, this long-awaited one, is going to establish a worldwide worship of Yahweh. Everybody's going to worship Yahweh. So you can see why they were so ready for the Messiah to show up. But, but what's the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? What is this role? Where do we get this name from? Well, according to the book, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, it says, it's a title derived from the Hebrew Mashiach. And it's a verbal adjective that means anointed one. Along with its New Testament equivalent, which is Christos or Christ, it refers to an act of consecration whereby an individual is set apart to serve God and anointed, sprinkled with oil. And so this idea of the Messiah, the anointed one, is used to describe this one they're waiting for. He will be anointed just as David had been anointed to be the king of Israel. He will be set apart as the one sent by God to rule over the people of God as that anointed one, that special person that God has in store. And they long for Him to show up. They long for the Messiah to come. But here's the real issue. Why? 
What was prompting them? We know they want a king. We know they want to see him defeat the Romans and put Israel back on the map politically. But listen to this from Jeremy Treat. After the fall, God's kingdom remained the eschatological goal. In, in other words, the future goal. It was still out there. Hadn't happened yet. Although now in the form of not only eschatology, future, end times things, but of redemption. See, we said last week that that word redemption is huge. And that's why, I guess as I had time to think about it, my description of the Bible is it's the story of redemption. It, it runs throughout the Bible from beginning to end. And so this idea that it's not just that this guy's going to come and set up his kingdom, he's going to redeem Israel. He's going to redeem the situation. And if he's going to bring peace to the entire world, he's going to redeem society. So redemption is huge in this whole idea of the king and the kingdom. I love this passage. It says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I've blotted out all your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I have bought you out. I have taken you from one place and brought you to another. I'm doing great things for you. It goes on and says, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Notice all these references to nature, because this takes us all the way back to the creation. How God made the creation perfectly. It is good. It is good. It is good. And then the fall takes place and suddenly everything is marred. And we're told that the creation groans waiting for the redemption of the world. And here is Isaiah prophesying that very thing. But we know that this hasn't happened yet. We know that these things are still out there waiting. And yet God is going to fulfill them. And so this whole idea of thy kingdom come, we have to ask at this moment when Jesus appears on the scene, it, has God's kingdom come and is His will being done on earth as it is in heaven? See, that's what makes this topic so difficult because when you look at the situation into which Jesus came, the Romans are in power. They're oppressing the Israelites. Even the religious leaders of Israel don't accept Jesus. And it appears as if the kingdom really hasn't come, but yet Jesus says it has. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. It's near. It's really here in the form of the king of the kingdom. So we have to really kind of dig into this to figure out what's really going on. See, what's interesting about the Israelites is that God had appointed them to be a kingdom of priests. Look at Exodus chapter 15. After he delivers them out of their exile in Egypt, here's what he tells them. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. He sets them apart. He, he creates them to be this special entity that represents Him and that bears His image because He has made them His own. He's, he, they're the apple of His eye, His special treasure, my holy nation, a kingdom of priests. See, He had set them apart as priests. Well, what's a priest? A priest is an intermediary who 
acts between God and man. And Israel as a nation was a kingdom of priests who were supposed to intercede between God, the creator of all things, and humanity. See, they were set apart. They were different. They were unique. They had a special privilege and responsibility to live out righteousness on earth as His priests, living holy lives, living set-apart lives. They were to minister to the nations on His behalf. And we know the story. We know that that really didn't happen. He gave them laws that would regulate their behavior, not only their behavior with Him, but their behavior with one another and with those outside their own people group. So He gave them laws, He gave them a sacrificial system, and He chose them or set them apart so that they, like Adam, would reflect His image to the nations. But we know the story, they failed. They didn't pull it off. They never did do what God told them to do. Even when they got into the land of promise and they conquered the nations that were there, they didn't conquer them all. They intermarried. They adopted their idols. They always lived in rebellion to God, some form of rebellion, never completely faithful to God. And so what happens? Well, we know that there are so many passages that reference their failure. Listen to this one. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, in the land of Canaan, they defiled it by the evil way they lived. To me, their conduct was as unclean as, as a, women's, a woman's menstrual cloth. They polluted the land with murder and the worship of idols, so I poured out my fury on them. I scattered them to many lands to punish them for the evil way they had lived. He brought in the Babylonians who conquered them and took them captive and dispersed them. It goes on and says, But when they were scattered among the nations, they brought shame on my holy name. Even when they were scattered, they continued this debacle of defiling the name, the reputation of God. For the nation said, These are the people of the Lord, but He couldn't keep them safe in His own land. Then I was concerned for my holy name, on which my people brought shame among the nations. I think what this passage is saying is that those Israelites who were taken captive and ended up in Babylon, were basically telling their foreign oppressors that, you know, our God bailed on us. Our God did this to us. Our God turned on us. They didn't tell them the truth. We turned on our God and are being punished. They blame God. Our God's not powerful enough. And it's my belief that many of those Israelites who ended up in captivity began worshiping the gods of the Babylonians and had given up on Yahweh. But see, God knew better. God knew, hey, this wasn't my fault. It's your fault. And I'm just holding you accountable because you brought shame to my name in the land and even outside the land. Israel, set apart by God, failed to keep their covenant commitments. We, we know that God had told them over and over again, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you don't obey me, I will curse you. And he was very specific about those curses found in Jeremiah chapter 26 and chapter 27. If you obey me, you will be blessed. I will pour out my blessings on you. But if you choose to obey me, these are the consequences. And they rejected every warning of the prophets. 
God sent prophet after prophet to warn them, if you don't return to me, if you don't repent, this is what's going to happen. And it's exactly what happened because they did refuse. They failed to repent. They rejected his offers. This kingdom of priests defiled God's reputation among the nations. You can imagine how angry God was with that because they were to be his image bearers just like Adam and Eve. And so just like Adam and Eve were cursed and by virtue of that, all their descendants, including us, so we have here with the Israelites. God cursed them. God sent them into captivity because rather than bear his image, they profaned his name. They destroyed his reputation, so to speak, while they were in the land and then even after they were in the land. So God punished them for it. What's interesting about this whole idea of them being cast from the land is it's a picture of, a reflection of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Well, you have the Israelites cast out of their garden, the garden called Canaan, which was a land flowing with milk and honey that was abundant in crops. It, it was a beautiful place. It was a lush place, but they find themselves cast out and their dominion was forfeited. See, God put them in that land to bless them told them to fill it, to get rid of all of the, 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 the people groups that lived there because they defiled the land. And yet Israel didn't do it. They forfeited their right to rule and reign. And so they were deposed. God knocked the props out from under them and then sent them, deported them into a foreign land. And their last king, Zedekiah, was killed. The set apart were basically set aside by God. What, what an incredibly dark image that is, that these people who had been blessed so much get set apart by God, and yet God is not done with them. That's what's so amazing about our God is that He still has a plan for their redemption. God's not going to give up on them. None of this, as we've said before, has caught, got, caught God off guard. He's not surprised. He's not up in heaven wringing His hands. He's not worried. He's not coming up with plan B because plan A failed. No, plan A is still in effect. Every one of these things he's known about from, from eternity past. And so he continues to work his plan. Ezekiel goes on and says, Therefore give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. I am bringing you back. But not because you deserve it. This is key. I'm doing it to protect my holy name. You defiled it. I got to protect it. On the name on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to restore you. Verses 23 and 24 go on. I will show how holy my great name is, the name on which you brought shame among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes to the nations, says the sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. For I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. So here's this incredible promise that's partially fulfilled in 538 B.C. when King Cyrus allows the Israelites, a remnant of the Israelites, to return to the land of Judah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. But it's just a remnant. And they build a really poor facsimile of the original temple. And they rebuild those walls, but they're nowhere near as massive or as strong as the original walls. And the city is still disheveled and the people are still oppressed. And it will remain that way for many, many centuries. But God's not done. 
God's not finished. That's, that's why these Old Testament prophecies are so important. Because Ezekiel goes on and says, Then, when, in a time to come, I will sprinkle clean water on you, Israel, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. That passage screams redemption. God is going to do for them what they could never do for themselves. He's going to redeem them out of what? Not just their slavery, but out of their stubbornness, their sinfulness, their resentfulness to God. But we know this has not yet been done. This has not yet happened. Because it goes on and tells us, God says, I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And you will live in Israel, the land I gave your ancestors long ago. You will be my people and I will be your God and I will cleanse you of your filthy behavior. Is this true right now in Israel? No. So it's got to still be out there. So here in this Ezekiel passage, chapter 36, you have some partial and not yet fulfilled promises of God concerning Israel. They're in the land. They're in that land right now, but they are not prospering like this. They are not clean as this passage portrays them to be. But God promises to cleanse them. He promises to do something great for them. Look at verses 33 through 35. When I cleanse you from your sins, I will repopulate your cities and the ruins will be rebuilt. The fields that used to lie empty and desolate in plain view of everyone will again be farmed. And when I bring you back, people will say, this former wasteland is now like the Garden of Eden. I love how the scriptures always link everything together. All the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the ultimate fall of creation because of the sins of Adam and Eve. God's going to restore that area of the world along with all the world and turn it into a Garden of Eden again. Again, has this happened? No. Is this the situation in Israel? Now, I've been to Israel and they've done an incredible thing with the land and they have used all kinds of agricultural technology and drip irrigation to take desert and turn it into farmland. But that's not what he's talking about here. This is something out of the ordinary. It's a recreation, much like the original creation. And it's the work of God. See, the people had returned to the land. When they went back into the land in 538 BC, under that decree from Cyrus, they were in the land, but they're still waiting for most of this to happen. And guess what? They're still waiting today. They're still waiting for the fulfillment of this. And in the meantime, they're living in darkness and despair. Still waiting for the Messiah to come. Isaiah tells us, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. It feels like it is. If you're an Orthodox Jew right now and you're still waiting for the Messiah, it's got to feel so dark and despairing that he still has not come yet. But Isaiah says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. That passage should be very familiar to us because it goes on and says, a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. 
The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. We've looked at this passage before, and the reason we're looking at it again is because it points to the answer to the problem. It's the solution to the darkness and despair that someone is coming who's going to fulfill every one of these promises. And it's, this passage is familiar to most of us, not because we read it in Isaiah chapter 9, but because we know the story as found in the Gospel of Matthew. Look at chapter 4. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, his hometown. Then he left there and moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. Here's what the Isaiah said. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. See, here's Isaiah, a prophet living hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, who's talking about one to come. And Matthew is saying, he's come. He's here. It's the Messiah. He is the great light. It's exactly what we read in John chapter 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. See, here's John echoing the sentiments of Matthew and Isaiah and telling us Jesus Christ is that light. He's the answer to the promise. He's the fulfillment of everything that God has said to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, and to the people of Israel. He's that light shining in the darkness that pervades the world. John goes on in Chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world He created. He made it. But the world didn't recognize Him. He came to His very own people, the people of Israel, and even they rejected Him. See, it's a world marked by darkness and despair, and into that darkness comes the light, and the light shines, and people don't recognize Him as the light, and His own people, the people of Israel, who are waiting for this Savior, this Messiah, this Anointed One, refuse to accept Him. They turn away from the very light of the world. See, here's Jesus coming to dispel that darkness that has lasted for literally centuries, and the people don't want anything to do with it. He tells them in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. What's amazing is that at creation, God or Jesus spoke physical light into being. He created light with His Word. We also know that at His incarnation, He brought spiritual light into being with His very presence in the form of a baby who grew into a man and lived a sinless life, he permeated the darkness of man's sinful condition. But the majority of people rejected him. And yet if you go study the Gospels and read through the Gospels, what you find out is that the good news, which is what gospel means, permeates all four books as you would expect. That Jesus Christ the King has come. 
They declare Jesus over and over again to be the Messiah, and they do it each in their own inimitable way. But they all say basically the same thing. Listen to Matthew. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Here's the angel telling Joseph, who's a little reluctant to keep his betrothed Mary because she's pregnant and it's not his child. He's saying, no, 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 you stay with her because this boy who will grow to be a man is the Savior who will save his people from their sins. Matthew goes on and says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. When Jesus Christ took on human form, it was God coming to dwell, tabernacle among men. What about Mark? Well, Mark says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? This is the high priest asking Jesus if he's the Christ, and this is taking place at his trial. And Jesus said, I am. I am the Christ, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right, right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And that statement so riled the high priest and the members of the Sanhedrin that the high priest tore his garments and, and declared him to be a blasphemer, declaring himself to be the Son of God, equal with God Almighty. But that's exactly what Jesus was saying. I am the Christ, the Son of God. How about Luke? Well, Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist, is told by the Holy Spirit that your son is pretty significant, but the one coming after him is even more significant. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See here, Zechariah knows, filled with the Holy Spirit, that this child that Mary is carrying is going to be the Savior of the world. He is the Christ. He is the answer, the fulfillment to all those promises. And then finally, John. Here's Jesus speaking to the people and most directly at the religious leaders of Israel. He says, you're from below. I'm from above. You're from this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, he who, the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Anointed One, you're going to die in your sins. So all, all four Gospels reveal that Jesus is the Son of God and the seed of Abraham who came through the line of David. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He is the King of Israel. You can't miss it. You can avoid it, but you can't miss it because this is what all four Gospels teach. He is the rightful heir to David's throne who's going to fulfill those promises in 2 Samuel 7 that God made to David. Zedekiah died, but guess what? Jesus lives, and he's the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. He fulfills everything, and I love this passage from 1 Corinthians Listen to what Paul says. He's, he's making reference to Jesus being the second Adam, the last Adam. He's the perfect Adam. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. God breathed life into him. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. In other words, Adam came first. Then comes the spiritual. The first man was born from the earth. He was literally made from Adama, dirt. A man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As with the man of dust, so also are all those of the dust. In other words, us. We're made just like Adam. We're, we're of the dirt. We're of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. See, when we step into a relationship with Christ, we are radically changed. We are redeemed. We are reformed, recreated. We become new creatures. Just as we have been born in the image of man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven. We are new creations. We've been redeemed. That's the whole story. That's the picture of the Bible. It's the story of God's redemption. And so the last thing I want to point out is this chart that I've placed in your notes. And it's very similar to the one we looked at earlier, but it starts with eternity past. It, it, it shows us that there was a creation, there was a fall, and, but ultimately there was the coming of the anointed one, the long-awaited one, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the descendant of David, the seed of Abraham. And between those two times, you see the kingdom foreshadowed. Up until the coming of Jesus, everything was a shadow of the things to come. David is a type of Christ, a type of Messiah, but he was not perfect, sinless. It's just a foreshadowing. But then with the coming of Jesus, you see him living his life in perfection, obeying everything that God called him to do, teaching about his kingdom, calling people to repent for his kingdom is here. And then he's crucified. He atones. He pays for the sins of man. And that inaugurates the kingdom. The kingdom is here, guys. And we are representatives. We are priests in that kingdom. We are mediators between God and man. Our job is to reconcile sinful men to a righteous God, just as we have been. And so we live in this time where the kingdom has been inaugurated, but he's coming again. And we'll talk more about this in the future. And he's going to come again and he's going to consummate his kingdom. There's going to be the seven years of tribulation. But at the end of the, that period of time, Jesus Christ will come back to earth as the conquering warrior king. And he will defeat all the enemies of God. And he will establish peace on earth. All those things the Israelites were expecting will eventually happen. And then he will restore creation. He will redeem creation and remake the heavens and the earth. Everything is fixed through Jesus Christ. And then the eternal state begins. The kingdom will be consummated. See, all of this is so important because it's all one picture of a whole. And we have to know the whole story if we're going to fully understand it, but more importantly, appreciate it. So next week, we're going to look at the nature of the kingdom that Jesus Christ came to bring. But for this week, I want you to think about these questions. First of all, in light of all that we've covered over the past four weeks, what about 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49 jumps out at you? Go back and look at it. We looked at it this, this morning, but go out, back and look at it again more deeply. Secondly, why is it so important that we consider the message of the Gospels in light of the Old Testament backdrop? I hope that chart gives you an idea and everything we've covered the last few weeks has helped you understand that if you don't understand the kingdom in the Old Testament, you will never understand it and appreciate it in the New Testament. And then finally, how has Jesus the King decided to shine His light into the darkness of our day? 
and what role are we to play in that? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for these men and, and women who I know are watching this as well because they tell me. Father, whoever is watching it, would you bless them as they spend time in your word and as they consider this incredible concept, doctrine of the kingdom of God. Lord, we thank you that your kingdom is real. We thank you that your son came. We thank you that he's coming again and that everything you promised will ultimately be fulfilled perfectly and in your timing. And we pray all of this and we thank you for it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you.